The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So I'd like to welcome you all. Many new faces and some old friends. Well, thank you for coming. It's a very cold day, so congratulations <laughs> for getting up and making the effort to come and listen. My teaching may differ a little from what you're used to with the Theravada, but hopefully we can impart some of the Buddha's intentions and perspective, but more so something that will be very useful for you. However, the Dharma comes to us. We are always taught in Zen we may be awakened by a neighbor or a dog <laughs> or a bird. <laughs> so we do not just rely on the words or the experiences of other. We'll start with a short meditation. Today I'll do something a little different for those who have come to my talks before. I would like to share a method, uh, a Korean method of what we call a Hadu practice. Hadu is uh, an inquiry. It is a koan that takes the core of that koan as an inquiry. But there are slight differences in this method, and this is one taught by a Zen master by the name of Subulsnim, who is around my age and a very pr prominent leader in Korea. So for a moment, we'll bring our attention to where we're sitting. In this case, we don't actually close our eyes. We just lower the gaze. And just bring your awareness for a moment to your posture and your body. Just making sure you're comfortable. And just breathe naturally. It's not a practice about our breath or about our observation or even our thoughts. But I want you to hold up your right index finger. Don't be frightened, just one, just one finger. Then I want you to bend it a couple of times. Just bend that finger. And then I want you to, with your focus on that action for a moment, I want you to think. What is causing this finger to bend?
if you are saying or thinking it must be my mind, then actually it is not true because to have had such an experience of mind such as the Buddha taught, we would need to be fully awake. So that will fall short and return to our thoughts. And if we think it is our thoughts, that also is not true. And thoughts include intentions. If we think it is our body, a reflex, then a body can also be a dead body, corpse. And a corpse cannot bend its finger. So we cannot use these ideas or the reality of what is happening here. And when I say reality, I am talking about a greater, fuller experience of what is going on. So we are left with what is called not knowing. I don't know. In Korean Buddhism, this is a very important place. We always think we're in charge, we know what we're doing, we know what we're thinking, we know our emotions. But when you start to practice, we discover we don't know. You can pop your finger down. So just sit for a few moments with this mind of not knowing and a mind of inquiry. When we don't know, we have an inquiry of, well, what is it or what is going on? What is moving the finger? That which is moving the finger is moving everything in our body. Of course, we want to come back to something like the brain or consciousness. But these two are not the answer. 
from a Zen perspective. When we practice this way, whether we're walking or sitting or lying down, we allow this growing sense or feeling of not knowing to grow. So it is a practice you can do at any time, any even even when you're doing other meditation practices. But it doesn't require it. Slowly a physical feeling or sense will arise in the body. We call that a doubt, not skeptical doubt, but that sensation of the unknown. From time to time, you can raise that finger and bring that to mind. Or you can just notice the movements in your body as you go along with your ordinary everyday lives, as you hold something Put it down, look, your eye gazes on an object of, of its interest. It is interesting when a mouth is closed. No sound can appear. When our eyes are closed, what is it we see? If we don't touch anything, what is it we feel? The ears are always open. 
and yet we don't hear. You can relax or continue to just sit with those thoughts. I want to start with a little story. I was coming home from the city. It had already turned dark as I turned into my street. So apart from the street, from my car lights, Everything was just very muted grey. And it was foggy and a bit misty. Now normally I would be bustling along by about two or three hundred metres to get home. But for some reason I was driving very slow very slow. There seemed no neediness or need to go fast. I'm always cautious with the dark, but this time I was possibly only traveling at about five kilometers. And just as I came over a little hill and a very slight bend, I slammed on my brakes and a great big deer came out of the yard of someone's house to my left and in front of my car. He also was not running, just moving very slowly, possibly dazzled by the lights. And he came around the front of the car to my side window and our eyes met. He looked at me for a long moment. Possibly in gratitude. Or possibly just in curiosity how close he'd been to a car before I don't know we have deer down in the valley of my property and at night I often hear shooting there are hunters down there shooting the deer for food so there may have even been a sense of appreciation But in that moment, as I've experienced in many other moments in my life and practice, when we meet with nature in the gift of giving and receiving, and that may be just observation, it may be nurturing, then something quite magical happens. We're often so consumed with our own purpose and need for 
what it is we're doing and wanting to do and where we're going, who we're interacting, that we, we don't interact in this way with the natural environment that surrounds us or even with the broader uh, life, human and other, that surrounds us. It took me back to when I was in Korea. Not that I saw many deer. I did see a few deer, and there was one who used to come to my hermitage. But more so other life, because it was a little bit remote in the mountain above the temple. Other life would stray onto the compound And uh, one pheasant was a regular visitor whenever I was doing something in the vegetable garden or sweeping or doing meditation outside, this pheasant would come and always with an introduction of its cry. And over some years we got to know each other, as I did with the squirrels. Talk to the squirrels... They would talk back, and the pheasant in the same way. And then one day I heard this, the pheasant was coming. I was, I looked up, but I couldn't see it. And its cry slowly faded and faded and faded and faded as it entered the forest. I never saw it again. But I was there in those last cries, whatever caused it not to stop with me on my property, I don't know. But I do know we had nurtured some sort of slight attachment or friendship. In those early years of being a monastic, life was simple and this practice that I shared with you, or a form of that practice, it opened up my mind to a practice that had many possibilities. Not just my needing of gain, an enlightenment or something out of this practice that would empower me. No, it was something that opened my understanding of Dhamma, or at least its expression, to embrace many forms that exist in my life at any one time. In Mahayana, of course, and and more so in Zen, everything you do is your practice, is the way you express this moment in an enlightened way. Whether you're liberated or not, the actual expression and uh, realization of these moments were very important. However, I, after 20 years, I returned back 
my basic shelter and food, medicine and clothing was all provided and still is. I'm very fortunate. Many Western monastic who have returned have succumbed to letting go of the lay life, uh, letting go and going back to lay life because one of these requisites were not met. But I've also found that having spent so long with very fine teachers, my own teacher having passed away quite early, and a sangha or a community of monks and nuns who I had learnt many things from and learnt to grow as a monastic with in the communities as here in Australia, in monasteries, you know, you work together and eat together and meditate together and study together and there's a, a program throughout the day that you practice. And so you become very intimately familiar with one another. As I've mentioned in other talks, our three-month retreats twice a year, I sat and slept and ate in this spot, the cushion laid out as a mattress, folded up as my cushion. My robe was above me and my bowl was above me. And every 10 minutes we walked in the room. Uh, sorry, every 50 minutes of meditation we walked in the room for 10 minutes short break after a meal, a late evening before we, we had a little rest and then up again at three o'clock in the morning. So sometimes only three or four hours sleep. But you are nourished by that. You are inspired and encouraged by the practice and the environment in which you practiced. So now that environment is me on my own in a forest of nature and wildlife with visitors coming and going. And many things, somebody reminded me who came to visit at Buddha's birthday recently, Chik Wang, you have many things, thank goodness, Things are not what make us enlightened or not. <laughs> but the things I have are predominantly things that, or all of them are things that have been given to me, but predominantly things that came back in a container after I returned to Australia. The temple had closed and many things found their way across the seas to my hermitage in hope that I could create some great big Buddhist center with a hundred people. I think there's bedding for over a hundred people. <laughs> so the irony is, of course, I'm not that big a monastic, you might say, or that big a <laughs> such a big bodhisattva that attracts such large groups of people. But I have created out of the means that I have, quite a lovely center. 
and it attracts people from various cultures and backgrounds and religious affiliations and local people who have little interest in Buddhism but many needs. So my topic today is about needs and neediness, including my own. But I'll start with a story. It's an interesting story because it's a, a Zen story, and I often offer one or two Zen stories. And this one is a story about two swordsmen who end up on a little boat together, a little barge it would be, that crosses from one bank to another. And there are a few people and the, the oardsman, the man who is rowing the boat. One of these swordsmen is having a nap and the other one is standing on the barge bragging about how famous he is and how many battles he has won and and telling many stories. And suddenly, Bukaden, who is the other fellow who was resting, sits up with all the noise, and he says, I really don't understand all these tales and your point about winning or gaining from fights. He said, I've been trained since I was a young boy. And I was never trained to win anything or to gain anything. So my fight is about... Oh, might have missed to put the um, the title in there, <laughs> but the the, the f title is uh, winning without trying, or winning with no effort, or gaining with no effort. And the other fellow says, "Well, why do you carry two swords if you are not?" wanting to win in a, in a fight. And Bukudu says, the two swords communicate directly with mind. Swords are often a symbol of wisdom. And in my temple you see a painting of protectors and the protectors all have swords. They're protectors of the 33rd heaven and they have these swords of wisdom. So these two swords of communicating directly with mind to mind. And mind to mind in Buddhism is also um, a direct transmission of mind from one master to a disciple or one person to another. And he said... Mind to mind is to break your cons our conceit, to break any self-centered belief or need 
or view or attachment and cut off the sprouts of wrong thoughts. So he has two swords, one of wisdom and one of compassion, to cut the sprouts of thoughts, wrong thoughts, or any thoughts really. Of course, this riled the ruffian, and he got very aggressive, and he said, well, if we duel, can you win without trying? And Bukadu replies, though my sword is a life-giving sword, I will take up the challenge. Basically, he was saying in the text, I will take up the challenge because you're such an unpleasant fellow or such an unruly fellow, but I will take up your challenge. And he guides the, the boatsman, the oarsman, to take the boat into a little inlet away from the shores that had a lot of people. And as they're guiding up to this little inlet, which is quite desolate and away from the public, and the people sitting in the boat are all looking very surprised and anxious about what's going to happen. And of course, the aggressive fellow jumps off the boat and races to the shore and calls out to him, Come on, let's see who can win without trying. And Bukaden replies, Though my sword is life-giving, again, I gain without trying or winning. But first, I must calm my mind. And he passes his swords to the oarsman, and he takes the rudder, he takes the oars, turns the boat, and he rows away. I mean, it does say that he first looks like he's going up to the shore, and then he turns. But basically, he turns away from the fight. There's many things in this story, actually, about ourselves, as all Zen stories are about the person who reads them. Communicating directly these two swords, how to meet a situation front-on, mind-to-mind, even if it is just an object of observation or of sound or of smell or taste or touch, how do we meet it? How do we interact with it? There's a teaching called the non-dual teaching, and I see many interesting interpretations of this. But basically, the non-dual is 
when the mind comes to the so-called foundation or ground of being, then there is not a thing that is outside of that and nothing you can put into it. And so your expression of life is complete and it encompasses everything and everyone in that moment. So that mind-to-mind is like that. When I look at you, you look at me, we can think we are jiguan, observing you, but that is not the case. We can think it's our eyes observing, but that is not the case, or our thoughts. All of these are very limited views to meet each other fully, we have to encompass this whole in this moment. Nothing is outside of what we are experiencing in this room. And only then can your compassion and wisdom sever the endless sprouts of ignorance and dualistic thinking and cravings and neediness. We have the water element. The boat is sitting on the water. The wisdom that's always flowing, conditions that are always flowing. We also have the boat itself. The body is like a boat, but more so, a whole universe is like a boat. Everything we know and experience is like this boat, bobbling up and down on the river of life conditions, the emotions, the transformations of life. And then we have the boatman itself, the one, that driver that steers, that intention, that view. Very well trained if we meditate. This everyday mind can become very well-trained, and I'm being careful not to say the enlightened mind here, but the cultivated mind. It knows how to steer life and how not to get into trouble, just like Bukaden. He knew how to, to win without any effort. And then we have the people around us, a few others in this boat at any one time. We have quite a few here today. This is it. You might be thinking of your family and wandered off to your loved one or the one you're having an argument with or something like that. So, but. It's whoever we are carrying with us in this moment. It's usually not very many. 
I think there's actually, um, I read somewhere, it is like you have 10 people, up to 10 people in your mind at any particular moment in time. You can't carry very many more unless you're meditating and you're doing a big visualization of the universe full of people, <laughs> as loving kindness allows us to do. But actually, you know, these, uh, this analogy, I think, is a very fruitful one for many things, and do reflect on it. Because it will help in the point of what do we need? The main character, of course, is this reckless swordsman. But our mind flounders in its habits, habitual habits of fear and anxiety, frustration, a sense of gain and a sense of loss, of name and fame. or being nobody and having nothing. These are like the boat bobbling up and down on the unpredictable waves of emotions. And it is only a sharp, sword-like mind that can cut through this. There's another wonderful story. I won't elaborate too long on this, but I'll just say a little bit about it because it comes out of a Mahayana Sutra and it is a father trying to get his, their children, his children, out of a burning house. And the children are so absorbed in their toys. And he's promising them all things. All sorts of wonderful toys. But still, they don't hear him. They're consumed with what it is they have and they love and they want to play with. Eventually, he entices them out by offering this absolutely magical cart car in our days, <laughs> but something so heavenly-like, so fanciful, that it captures the imagination of the children. And if we could think, you know, what would that be for us? I mean, certainly Mahayana Buddhism has this, or all Buddhism has it. But you know, when they talk about the various heavenly realms, they're expanding our mind beyond what it is we are very comfortable with. They're drawing us out like this father trying to take the children. If someone's phone, again, please turn it off. Thank you. And we can see 
from that little analogy too. When things absorb us in a way that's unhealthy or even dangerous, what are we stuck? Where are we stuck? What are we hanging on to? What are we attached to? What are we so absorbed in? It's as if we're in a dream. Just as a child in a dream in a play with their toys, we're in a dream and someone or something is happening and we're running down the street, being chased. We're too frightened to look behind. We just run. And then suddenly we wake up from the nightmare. And it's just a dream. And life is actually a little like this when you wake up. The point of Buddhism is to wake up to wake up out of this dream. You might think you are looking at me, but even on the basic level, it's only your thoughts that are creating some observation of me. Even science will talk to you about that from a very scientific perspective. But more so, going back to the finger analogy, there is something far greater that allows us to perceive what it is we perceive. And from an awakened mind that is quite removed from an ordinary mind. The clarity is crystal clear. The point is penetrates to such a depth that it severs the ignorance. I've said this many times when I've met great teacher. Then just walking in the room, all my thoughts, even the inquiry or the question I had to ask has gone. It's gone. And we're just mind meeting mind in that moment. So our dreamlike life, full of its addictive patterns and habitual behaviors, our relentless relating, trying to relate, trying to impress, improve, inform, communicate, connect, is the dream we make up about who we are and what we are in this life and what we want out of this life. We sometimes start that dream at a very young age. Many of you would have seen that program, I saw a few of them, where every seven years they photographed children and asked who they want to be at the age of seven. And then for the next 
forget how many times, many times, every seven years they, re, uh, they met them. And those, most of those children became who they wanted to be as a very young child. And we could say, oh, that is a karmic, that is the causes and effect that the Buddha talked about. Well, maybe, but also the environment in which they grow up, the things they play with, the things that inspire as a very young age, from even a baby, influence what we have brought into this life with us. Nurture can have a big effect, as they have found, but also our past causes and effects, our past uh, karmic debt, you might say, carry quite a weight. What's that time? Do I have a clock? What time do I go to? Ten minutes ago. (laughs) Around now, so just say a few more things. You know, with COVID also on the rise again, and we're taking a little bit more precaution, uh, more people are hospitalized, still we come across situations and Langdon informed me of one yesterday where he was videoing a wedding with 180 to 100 people and only he had a mask on. It beckons to wonder, doesn't it? And many of them were quite elderly people. So is this a dream of denial? We got so tired of the lockdowns and now, well, COVID's here to stay. Are we going to be reckless about whether we get sick or whether we infect others? Unfortunately, COVID can again be a very serious illness, especially if you get a flu on top of it. And it may get more serious. So I do suggest we all, on our journey to, you know, seeking and wanting to achieve and, um, and all the things that we do in, in the sense of helping others with their needs. I have many people just turn up and mostly... If I sit them down and we have a cup of tea, I start to hear a story. One story, which I won't go into too far, was my neighbor, who had actually lived in my hermitage for a while with her daughter, one of her daughters, her youngest daughter, after she separated. I came to an accident at the end of the road one day, and I saw Debbie and somebody else, and a car had hit a tree. And someone informed me I had to wait until the police had 
done their research. And then um, there had been someone who'd been hurt in the car. And as I saw Debbie, I realized something in relation to her, and it was her daughter. And that accident actually killed her daughter. Not straight away, but she didn't have her seatbelt on properly. So I went to see Debbie. Um, I hadn't seen her, and I thought she had gone away for a while. And I went to see her probably about 10 days later. And freezing cold morning, like this morning, we were outside, she had a dressing gown on and smoking profusely, and she wanted to talk. She was trying to still assess what had happened. My daughter never uses the phone when she drives, you know, I don't understand. And, um, and then she invited me in for a cup of tea, and I sat there for another, at least an hour, while she shared the whole story. And just listening, just being a, totally present with it was useful, helpful for her to unpack a little bit and to grieve. It was, I was the first person who had actually come to see her. It was a shock. She lives on the property with other neighbors. And so we can actually find ourselves pulling away from what is very painful, what is hard to understand or what is hard to be with. But when we don't, when we lean into that suffering, ours and others, we learn a lot about ourselves in the nourishment of support of others. My birds, I feed my birds a little bit every day and they inform me, they've become a flock. And when they sense there is a danger, they have a leader and the leader says no and they will not come down from the high treetops, even if I scatter the food on the ground. They have become so disciplined to know that in a flock you have, in a community, you have those who inspire and guide and are there for your safety and well-being. Somehow, we need courage and we need perseverance and patience to develop this sort of selfless love, one sword. And we need meditation. To sharpen the other sword of wisdom. To bring the clarity and the focus and the understanding to sever what is unwholesome and what is uh, 
are needed in our lives. Sometimes we need to seek teachers and study the Dhamma. But we do need a practice and guidance. For the heavens and hells to not absorb us, so to speak. The highs and the lows, not to rock the boat too much. We need to develop what I think patience and equanimity are the pillars of balancing the mind and the heart. The Buddha was about gradual gains and gradual cultivation. We often talk in Zen about sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. But usually you will find, if even if you have a sudden awakening, it's cultivated for many lifetimes to come to that moment. Without a cultivation, gradual cultivation, the heart of Kindness and generosity may not be there. The heart of understanding may not be there. So I thank you for listening. If something of today's talk is of benefit, please share it with others. Offer the merits of our talks our thoughts, our actions with others, especially those that are close to us. And enjoy the rest of this day. Chilly as it may be, it may have a little sunshine coming up. And I think um, there may be some food. I'm not sure what the story is, whether people are encouraged to stay, are they, or not? Oh, we're having Q&A, yes. I haven't, <laughs> I've talked so long. I've, yeah. So is there any questions? <laughs> you may have already relaxed and been thinking of the next thing where you're going from here. But if you have a question, yes. Yes. I'm just wondering why are um, like negative habits so much heavier than positive ones? Uh, you know, we are biased. We are biased to negativity. Humans are biased, unfortunately, to negativity. And even with, uh, it, it does require quite, um, from a very young age, 
to have very positive uh, nurturing and positive um, instilling in you, basically, you know, positive environment. But still, you know, you do have, um, from a Buddhist perspective, you do have some karmic um, influences and weights, you might say, that will weight our disposition in one thing or another. It can be generic, generic too, you know, genetic too, in the sense that um, uh, family members or ancestors, that they have, you know, we have instilled in some physical way um, predispositions, you know, to health and to body. But may I say that no one who really comes to this path comes because they are joyful, happy, and uh, living in a heavenly realm. They don't. The greatest teachers are all those who have a very deep weight, a very deep unknown uh, depth, I carried, I don't know why or what, it wasn't from my childhood that I could recognize um, something that was so deep. And for many years I sought teachers, I did the hardest of practices, you know, I look like a soft old granny now, but I have gone through the rigor career in the in the 70s was not an easy country to live in and we were very poor. Food was very limited. So part of that rigor allowed me to not just dwell on that part of myself. Although when I first went into robes I didn't feel that way. I felt Wow, the Dharma is so uplifting and uh, and so people who are practicing were so, you know, seemed buoyant and live and happy. and. But I knew after living in community for a long time, and I've basically had lived in community from the age of 25 until I returned in my mid-forties, I had lived in community. And then I could see, when you live in community, you then see the unfolding as people go deeper and deeper into the practice. Then the depth of this grief and suffering begins to surface. It's like one little boat on that great big river. You know, teachings I give about what's in the river. And we have somehow to become that river of emotion. Now it's not just our emotions, because we see it as a self in there, a me and a my. But the deeper you go, you realize as the Buddha did, everybody feels like this to one degree or another. 
everyone has a struggle. And the best practice is that of being very kind to yourself. Not turning away from it, but to embrace it with kindness. It is a part of you. Let's say if you're born as the rough, in the family of the ruffian swordsman, you know, probably been murderers for however long. That's how he learned, or that was his position. Then you were born into that. You carry that. And some cultures and some history in those cultures, you know, I just can't imagine children being born in Ukraine or all those young Russian men who are going off just as fodder for death, for, for a war, and dying. But our forefathers have too. Ambinoan, you know. And we carry that. I didn't realize the Buddha said something when you become a monastic for seven generations, your family will prosper in some way, will be better off. Well, I did notice when I became a monastic, my family's fortunes and life turned around rather quickly. Now, it's not that I'm, my merit is just giving them something. It's not like that in my mind. It's I started to allow the problems and the griefs that we had inherited through my meditation to surface and with wisdom and compassion to move on or to really transform because they transform into wisdom. Your sorrow will become that the wisest monks always have come from very deep places. Okay. So, there are no more questions. Probably had enough. There's been a lot shared. Thank you very much. And enjoy your day.